0: Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim is wrapping up our mini-series that we've been calling The Kingdom of Heaven is Like, with a message that shows us the power of a mustard seed and yeast. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now... Let's head over to Pastor Tim. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 13 this morning.
1: Matthew chapter 13. And we've been uh, spending the last four weeks looking at a series of short stories that Jesus told. Uh, by the way, my name is Tim. I don't know if I've introduced my... Hi, friends. I'm Tim. I'm glad you're here. Anyway, four, uh, we've been, for four weeks, we've been walking through the series of short stories that um, Jesus refers to as parables, um, or parables. Uh, parables are essentially stories that are, are meant to try to convey a deeper truth. Um, sometimes, uh, when it comes to the deep truth, you've got to use things like, uh, like a story. You say things like, uh, it, the kingdom of heaven is like, it's kind of, love is like, and then you find yourself, I, it's hard to put a definition on it when you tell stories. Um, during, during the first song, my four-year-old leaned over to my wife and said, wow. Why do they want to set the church on fire, right? <laughs> sometimes metaphors get lost on a uh, little. But Jesus understood that like, with the deepest truths, <laughs> truth, uh, sometimes we need stories. And so he tells these four parables. And uh, what we've been trying to do over the last few weeks is we, I've been trying to build a case for why the kingdom of heaven um, is not just an important idea to Jesus, but it is his main idea, uh, this, is, this idea of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is Jesus' main sermon. It is the, um, the thing Jesus spends the majority of his life and then commissions his disciples to go and share with the world. This idea um, will become the central idea and the very central sermon of the Christian movement. And so we've been trying to build a case for what is Jesus getting at when he tells these stories uh, what I want to do this morning as we kind of wrap up chapter 13 is I want to try to pull the four strands together. So over the last four weeks, we've been working slowly. I want to pull them together and ask, okay, what is, what is possible for the church? What is Jesus talking about in all of this? Uh, and to do that, we're going to root it in Matthew chapter 13. So um, would you please, uh, there's, there's four parables here, and uh, they're all very short. They're all just like a sentence or two. But Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and he planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them another, still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and he mixed and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked its way all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. And then if you jump down to verse 44, there's, we'll read two more quick parables. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and he sold all he had and he bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and he bought it. Uh, Jesus tells four stories um, about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Four uh, short little parables. Uh, The first is about a mustard seed, a parable about yeast, a parable about buried treasure, treasure buried in a field, and then uh, a story about fine pearls that are worth everything. Um, Now, I'm... uh, a couple weeks ago, we explored how every parable has like layers and layers of meaning. Um, remember this, if you were with us? Uh, we we kind of did a deep dive into one. I just wanted to show you how you could take one story that seems on the surface to be really simple. And what, is, what a, a Jewish rabbi, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, uh, the way they would teach is they would have all of these layers of, of meaning behind the parables. Uh, and that's certainly true with the ones that we um, just read. In fact, uh, those four parables, if you can do a deep Dive. We're not going to do that this morning, um, but you could do a deep dive in the four parables. Uh, the four parables. For instance, there are all these Rameses in the parables. Remember Rameses, like a biblical hint. Uh, look up. We're not. We're not. You know, I'm excited about what I am going to share with you. If I'm not going here with you, because I'm excited about this stuff, but we're not going to go here. But if you're interested in it, look up Ezekiel 17. Um, Ezekiel 17, hint, hint, as you're reading through the whole thing, when Jesus, like, and then the mustard seed becomes a tree. No, they don't. Why would he say that? Ezekiel 17, Uh, look up Ezekiel 17 if you're interested in that stuff. And then Genesis 18, the whole idea about 60 pounds of of bread, you should be asking yourself, why? Seems like a a very specific number, Jesus. It is. Um, But we're not looking at that this morning. Uh, What I want to do this morning, instead of diving deep into these four again, uh, we did that work a few weeks ago. Uh, I want to instead, I want to ask the question, how did the first Christian church take these kinds of ideas, um, this idea of uh, of the kingdom of heaven, and how did they understand it? Because they understood the pictures at like the, the basic level, but also at a deep level. They understood that a mustard seed, tiny little seed, Um, Really, uh, barely barely visible with the human eye, small little seed, and yet, when this seed gets in the ground, and this is seen throughout Galilee, the northern region of Israel, when this seed gets in the ground, it's an invasive species, and it will take over an entire field. You will see these yellow flowers. That's not it. Um, Probably a couple back. You' see these there we go. You'll see these yellow flowers uh, everywhere in Israel, um, kind of in the late May, early June. You'll see these things going everywhere. Um, in fact, it's such an invasive species that if one of those tiny little seeds gets under your house and gets any kind of moisture to it, it can crack the foundation of homes. It's an invasive species. It starts small and it grows fast. Similar uh, idea with yeast uh, yeast not visible to the human eye, can't see yeast. Um, but yeast, when what they understood was that if a little bit of yeast gets in flour, you learned this lesson during COVID, right? A little bit of yeast gets in flour. You made your sourdough bread. Um, a little bit of yeast gets in flour and you let it sit for a while. It changes the entire consistency of the flour. Like the whole thing changes because of a tiny, uh, not visible to the human eye, Thing so what they understood that Jesus was saying was, okay, the kingdom of heaven, it starts small, but once this thing gets going, there's no stopping it. They got that message, uh, but they also understood that it's not just that it starts small and it grows and it's kind of like, like it, it changes things. What they also understood was that it's really good, like it's it's, it's growing and it's growing in a uh, at an exponential rate, but it's a, it's it's fantastically good. And so the, the parable, they understood the, the metaphors Jesus is equipping here. Treasure buried in a field, worth everything. You, you'd sell you what you have to get that treasure. They understood what a fine pearl is and how fine pearls in the ancient world are worth a lot. And so what they understood what Jesus is saying is okay. the kingdom of heaven. And again, we can go deep into this stuff, but catch the basic picture. The kingdom of heaven is going to start small, but when it gets going it will change the very nature of the roman empire because it's that good that's that's now how did that happen okay, so so how did that happen how, obviously it happened because we're here how did that happen how did a movement of 11 guys with jesus on a hill as he commissions them to go into all the earth how did 11 guys on that hill, go into all the world, so much so that you and I are gathered here. The, the body of Christ, the church, extends into every country. Like, How did that happen? Um, uh, there's a great book I'm going to recommend. I, I strongly encourage you to read it. Um, I read it earlier this month called Not In It to Win It by Andy Stanley. Anybody read this book? Oh yeah, okay. Uh, not in it to win it, uh, Andy it's, I Again, I strongly recommend it. Um, I, I don't agree with everything Stanley says, especially some of the way he thinks of the Old Testament. He and I may disagree, but the central premise I find of this book to be spot on, um, he, he talks about COVID and all this, but he does a really great section in the middle where he talks about the history of the Christian church. Um, and uh, let, so let me just give you a, a short history of the Christian church um, I find this stuff to be really, really fascinating. How did we, we get here? Um, as we've said for the last four weeks, Jesus, and this is, this is maybe shocking to hear, but Jesus did not come to start a new religion. Process that. Jesus came to launch a whole new worldview a new religion, the earliest Christians understood, was too small, that it would sit alongside all these other. That's too small. What Jesus came to, to launch into the world was a whole new way to think about what it means to be human, a whole new way to view all of reality, all of life, a whole new worldview. That's how the, the first Christians thought of it was um, they, they referred to themselves as the new humanity. Like this is a whole new thing that's bursting onto the scene. What was normal before, the first Christians said, well, that's not that's not what's supposed to be normal. Now, we've been saying that for four weeks, but what, what do we mean when we say that? Um, okay, well, think of, uh, so do y'all have a good 4th of July? Anybody light things on fire, throw them into the air? Okay, 4th of July. Um, so think back, you know, a couple hundred years ago uh, to the first 4th of July, uh, that July 4th, 1776, Declaration of Independence is signed. You, you know the famous words in the Declaration of Independence, um, we hold these truths to be what self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable alienable rights that among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Our founding, our founding father said that that it's self-evident that all people are created equal. It's self-evident they said. That, I mean. It, It's like you look out and say, well, of course. And to this day, um, we would say, of course, right? You put in a room uh, a group of Americans, Christians, non-Christians, atheists, agnostics. You put them in a room and you ask, is it self-evident that all people are created equal? And we will all say, most people would say, of course, of course, it's self-evident. But then you got to take a step back and you have to ask the question, well, where does this idea come from? Because for the history, the majority of the history of the world, the very opposite was believed to be true. In fact, the dominant worldview, and this was the dominant worldview at the time of Jesus, the dominant worldview in the Roman world was that it was self-evident that some people are superior to other people. And because that's self-evident, it was self-evident in the Roman world, the world that Jesus launched his movement into, it was self-evident that slavery was natural, obvious. In fact, um, here, listen to this quote from Aristotle in the 4th century B.C. For that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjugation, others for rule. Slavery, they said, oh, that's self-evident. That's obvious. Slavery is obvious. Also, it was self-evident in the Roman world that men were superior to women. They said, look around, look at, like, me, like the male body is superior, the male mind is superior. They said everyone, everyone knows that. That's obvious. That was self-evident in the Roman world. Uh, in the Roman world, it was self-evident that adults were superior to children. So self-evident that adults were superior to children that not only was it legal— In some cases, it was viewed as the humane thing to do to if you had a child that you didn't want. Usually, uh, if it it was a female child you didn't want, because again, men were superior. That was self-evident, they believed. So if you had a child you didn't want, there was a whole process. It was called exposing the infant. We talked about it uh, back when we talked about Ephesians. Um, It was called exposing the infant. Essentially, what you would do is you take your child, your newborn child, and you would walk that child to the edge of a forest, to the edge of the city gates, uh, to the side of a mountain, and you would leave your child. And they believed it was actually humane because now you're letting it up to the fates, the gods to decide. If the baby survives, that's up to the gods. But if the baby doesn't survive, that's on the gods. You didn't, you didn't kill that baby. You just left the baby. And then you would leave. And they said, not only is that self-evident, in many ways, that's the humane thing to do. Um, uh a letter dated June 17, 1 B.C., a Roman soldier. So uh, 1 B.C., so like right around the birth of Jesus. A Roman soldier stationed in Alexander wrote to his wife. This is what he said. Know that, know that I am still in Alexandria, and do not worry if they, the army, wholly set out. I am staying in Alexandria. I, dare, I ask you and entreat you, take care of the child. And if I receive my pay soon, I'll send it up to you. Above all, if you bear a child and it's male let it be. If it is female, cast it out. So was the dominant worldview at the time of Jesus. The dominant worldview at the time of Jesus where slaves were less, women were less, children were less. That was the dominant worldview up until Jesus. Now we think it, it's like our stomach turns. See how what Jesus did was more than just launch A new religion. He changed how we think about the world. Um, So, what what happened? Uh, Well, there was a group of of people, uh, Christians. They uh, did a lot of the things we do still to this day. They sang songs, they prayed prayers, they broke bread together. But they found what was happening in the Roman world to be antithetical to what they read about Jesus in their scriptures, the stories they heard, the experiences they had. And so, this group of Christians said to the world that said, This is normal, they said, This, this may be normal, but it's not right. Uh, in fact, um, they would hold these giant meals. And at the meals, um, they, would, they called those meals communion because we're going to eat together and we're going to, in our eating together, we believe somehow God shows up in that meal. They called it communion and they would have these giant meals and everyone was invited. In fact, Paul gets really angry in the book of uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. He gets really angry because the rich people are getting out of work before the poor people who have to work a little longer, and they're eating all the food. And he says, you don't understand the point of communion. And in the letter to the Galatians, he says these words. So in Christ Jesus, you were all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you know what this is? Um, by historical standards, this is the first ever recorded document in all of history that argues for the equality of men and women, for the equality of races. Do, do you see what Paul's doing here? Jesus, they took this seriously, uh, elevating the position of women um, to, to, uh, to, to places of pastorship in their community, elevating the—they the, actually—there's a movement in the early church where they would go and they would purchase slaves out of Roman home so that they would essentially give them their freedom. That's the letter to the Philemon, to, that Paul writes to Philemon. It's about purchasing a slave so that you can set them free. Um, they, there was this whole movement amongst the early church— you know, you know what the early first church did? They said, oh, you're going to leave your children at the gates? We'll go get them. We'll raise those kids. And so the early church would adopt, go to the side of the mountain, to the edge of the forest, to the side of the city gate, and they would adopt the children into their own homes. And they would raise the kids as though they were their own kids. They said what Jesus brought was not just a new new way to think about God. It was a new way to think about everything. What Jesus, what he launched into the world was a whole new worldview that replaced the old worldview. A whole new way to see everything. What was self-evident before is no longer self-evident. Why? Because of what Jesus did. In fact, and to this day... Um, any place on earth that the movement of Jesus has spread to, you will discover the rights of women and children, and you will discover movements against racism have, have, have boomed in those regions. Jesus changes the world. In fact, uh, even in, um, in our country today, uh, in this, isn't, isn't this ironic? Today, the, we will still talk those who don't believe in Jesus, so the people who are the most like, hostile to Christianity, I'm done with that, I want nothing to do with that, will still use the logic and the arguments of the Christian movement to make their points. They'll still argue for women, for children, using the very worldview that Jesus gave us to the world. And that ironic, like it's like Jesus came to birth a whole new thing, and we've now it's it's grown. It's like a mustard seed. Once it gets out, it's gonna it's gonna be contagious. Once it's like yeast. Once it works itself into the fabric, the entire fabric of the Roman world is gonna be different. And to this day, um, even though there are many in our world who don't know, it's a, it's from the worldview Jesus launched into the world. I don't know that we've always shared that the best. The worldview of Jesus has changed the fabric of humanity. And so it's spread. How does, how does it happen? Um, the movement of Jesus started small. Family here, a small group that meets over here, a, a neighborhood house church that meets in the, the corner of the, of the district under the cover of the night. Um, but they committed themselves to living a certain way. They actually referred to the way that they were living as the way. Um, so they referred to this new religion, this new worldview, as the way. We're going to live the way of Jesus. And they committed themselves to doing these things, and it slowly began to grow. Again, it was slow at first, but once it took off, it exploded. Now, um, you uh, cannot challenge the status quo without expecting that the status quo is going to push back a little bit. right? You cannot challenge the worldview of Rome without expecting that Rome is going to say, how dare you, we're still Rome, right? You, fine, go pray in your house, church, go do your thing, but we're still Rome. How dare you tell us what we're supposed to be doing? You cannot push back without, um, you cannot live a counter-cultural narrative without expecting that the main, that that the Roman Empire is not going to fight against you. The Romans even referred to the Christians as, get this, atheists. Here was their logic. They said, Okay, you, 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 you claim to only believe in one God, but you're not bowing down to all the gods, all of the Roman gods. Because you're not bowing down to all the Roman gods, you're essentially atheist. You don't believe in the gods. And then the logic, they, they went a little bit further. And they said, well, anytime there's a, a problem in the world, it must be because you Christians have made one of those gods angry right? You're not bound down to the sun god. You're not bound down to the rain god. You're not bound down to the gods. And so if it's not raining, if it's not sunny, that's because you didn't... Bo- the, the Christians are the problem, they said. Uh, in fact, get this quote from a, a, a Christian named Tertullian in his book Apologeticus. Um, he was a lawyer who stumbled his way into a house church Saw what was going on in this church, was so fascinated by it that he kept sticking around until he gave his life to this Jesus. Uh, He writes this He says, If the Tiber reaches the wall, if the Nile does not rise to the fields, if the sky does not move or the earth does, if there is famine, if there is plague, they cry at once, The Christians to the lions. See what he's saying here? The, The Christian movement did not spread because it was easy to be a Christian. Christian movement did not spread because it was politically advantageous to be a Christian. The Christian movement spread when Christians were getting blamed for pretty much everything. And so uh, crosses, you know, right now it's a, it's a symbol for us of, of, of Christ and conquest. And, and, but crosses were a Roman torture device. And on those crosses, they would line the streets. So as you made your way to your house, church, you walked by your friends, and you're reminded this is the cost, uh, and the Coliseum, have some of you been to the Coliseum? Coliseum, uh, they would uh, hold these games in which they would feed Christians to lions. You know these stories. They'd feed Christians to lions all as a way of saying, how dare you start this, how dare you push back? How dare you not just fall in line? How dare you? How dare you? Uh, and... And yet, um, Tertullian also goes on to say that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because he said, what he noticed was, is the, the more Rome pushed back, the faster, like, like a mustard seed, it grew. Like yeast, it spread. The, the more they pushed back, the faster the movement grew. And by the time we got to the second century, just a few generations after Jesus, there were these splinter cells of Christianity that were kind of sprinkling the Roman map. They were popping up everywhere, these little splinter cells. But those splinter cells kind of splintered, and then those splintered, and those splintered. And we had this movement growing. And the emperor at the time, a guy named Trajan, Emperor Trajan, He saw what was happening. He realized, okay, this thing is getting contagious. We got to stop the movement. So Emperor Trajan devised a plan. You guys following this? This is Tim nerding out in history with you. With you. Not at you. With you. Ah, He has a plan. Here's his plan. He sent out an edict instructing the governors of all the regions. Remember like Pontius Pilate was a governor of the region of Judea. So all the regions of the Roman Empire, the governors got an edict. The edict said, find the Christians and arrest them. Okay, so your job is to find the Christians and arrest them. There was one governor who just so happened to be a relative of Emperor Trajan who gets the edict and he reads the edict and he says, well, I I got some questions Essentially, his question was, on what grounds are we charging them with? Like, Why are we arresting them? This guy, by the way, way, uh, this governor is named Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger. You've heard of that? Some of you are like, I know that beer. Before, it was a beer. He was a man. (laughs) And now you know that. Uh, he wrote a letter to the emperor. He decided what he was going to do is he was going to do a bit of investigating of his own because I got to find a reason to charge these people. I'm with you, Emperor Trajan. I think we got to stop it too, but I got to figure out why. I got to have we got to have some reason. We got to have some like law that they're breaking. So he begins his investigation. He then writes a report of all that he discovers and he sends it off to Emperor Trajan. We have that report. Let me read you a bit of the report. He says. The sum, the sum, sum is what add it all up. This is what I said. Okay, the sum and the substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively, responsively, a hymn to Christ as to a god. That's it. They met, they met uh, before dawn on a fixed day, Sunday, and that's what we discovered: is they would sing songs. They weren't scheming to take down the government. They weren't plotting violence. They met before why before dawn? Because Sunday was the first day of the Roman work week. They met before dawn, before work, to gather as a community. They would why sing songs? Because in a in a world that Christianity is kind of suppressed, how do you pass along your deepest truths? Through singing. That's how you pass theology, it's how you memorize. Uh, Many of you, you have songs memorized. uh, It's way easier to memorize a song than it is to memorize scripture. And so they would sing these songs, remind themselves of their theology, um, but they weren't plotting to take, this was his report. I investigated, and what I discovered was they get up really early, and they sing. (laughs) And then he goes on. So they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and to bind themselves by oath. Not do some crime. Get this, this is, a, this is the best part. Not do some crime, but not, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery. Not falsify their trust, nor refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. What, what's the big discovery of Pliny? They beat together and they like sing these songs and they talk about how they're not going to break the law. And they talk about how they're going to be fair to each other and that they're going to pay each other back if they, if they borrow. They meet together, uh, and they, like, they talk about how... Emperor Trajan, they're better Romans than we are. right? So all of the Roman, worship, all the Roman God-worshipping Romans, they're ripping each other off, and they're saying, yeah, but it's my right. But these Christians, they're getting together, and they're saying, I don't care if it's our right. We're not going to do that. Scandalous. They did that. We should do that again. We should do that again. Um, But uh, Pliny thought maybe he's missing something, so he decides he's going to take the investigation uh, up a notch. He's going to investigate a little bit further into it all. He also includes this in his report. Notice what he does. He says, I judged it all the more necessary to find out the, what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. Yeah, they don't call them slaves. They call them pastors. That's weird. But they, in our mind, they're slaves. Um, two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. Um, believing in the resurrection, they said, well, that's, a, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, I therefore postpone the investigation and hasten to consult you. For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because, don't miss this, don't miss this, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread, not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. Jesus says, okay, okay, huddles his fathers and says, listen, it's like a mustard seed. You know how mustard seeds work? When the mustard seed gets into the ground, no matter how hard you try to stop it, it grows and it spreads. Look up that Ezekiel passage. It's brilliant. It grows and it spreads. It's like yeast. When yeast gets into a little bit of flour, it changes the very fabric, the very nature of the dough. That's the movement, and it's so good that it's going to win. It's like fine pearls. It's like treasure like buried in a field. Once they see what they're missing, this thing will launch. It, there's no stopping it. That's what, that's what they did. I think we should do that again. Um, anyway, uh, Pliny sends out his report, so he's done his investigating. He's got his report. I, I, they sing, and they get up early, and then they talk about how they're not going to break laws, And then I tortured a couple of them. And uh, what I discovered was, uh, yeah, they're pretty good people. Here's my report. I don't know how to charge them. Emperor Trajan, uh, he's got his own report. We won't read that. But he, he reads the report. He sends a report back. You can look it up. He sends a report back. Essentially, the report comes down to this. He says, I didn't do anything wrong. Charge them anyway. They're bowing down to Jesus. Charge them with that. Torture them and kill them. If they decide they don't wanna bow down to Jesus, okay, we're we're peaceful people, let them go. But if they insist on bowing to Jesus, torture them, charge them, torture them, and kill them anyway. And so you know how the Christians responded to this? Well, that's too much,
0: we're gonna kill you first.
1: No, the Christians, you know how the Christians responded? They didn't speak a single negative word of, of like, we're gonna take down this thing. Not one single negative like, we're gonna take it back. The Christians responded very different. How did the Christians respond? Um, well, it turns out we have their playbook. Do you know that you have the Christian playbook? It's how they launched the movement, it's, it's how they changed the world. We have their playbook. It's, uh, it's scattered in the book in your Bible called Acts, short for Acts of the early church or Acts of the Apostles. Um, the book of Acts gives you, our, gives you their playbook um, really brilliantly. Uh, Paul, one of the first church planters, writes two-thirds of the New Testament, Pastor Paul. Paul gives you their playbook. We have their playbook. Essentially, their playbook comes down to uh, two central ideas that they find in the life of Jesus that they say, these two ideas are worth like holding on to. These two things are how we want to be known. This is, this is their playbook. Let me give you the their two central ideas. Uh, two ideas from Jesus, uh, a prayer and a command. So the prayer, they said, well, that's that's what we're supposed to do or be. And then the command is, okay, that's how we're going to do that or be that, the prayer. Now, we, um, we often talk about uh, the Lord's Prayer, and uh, it's, it, you know, we think, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, that, that prayer. Um, but did you know that Jesus, so that's a prayer Jesus teaches us to pray. When the disciples say, Jesus, how should we pray? He says, this is how you should pray. But do you know that Jesus also has a prayer that he prays for us? kind of brilliant, actually. Jesus actually has a prayer that he prays for us. On the night, right before they arrest him and charge him and then uh, torture him and kill him, Jesus prays a prayer and we have his prayer. It's in uh, found in John 17. Um, there's essentially, there's three sections. First, he prays for himself because he knows what's coming. Then he prays for his 12 disciples because he knows it's coming. And then he prays for us. Let me read you what he prays. My prayer, verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who's that? Us. Pay close attention to this next part. It says, that all of them may be, what does your Bible say? One, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. That they may be One, as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, 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 circle the then, 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 the world will know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Interesting. The prayer Jesus prays for us, like the last prayer, the prayer right before he's arrested and killed, the prayer he prays for us is that you and I would be united. Our unity not, by the way, not our uniformity. Jesus, Jesus gathers 12 disciples who come from wildly different backgrounds. Like, that's, that's part of it. Not our uniformity, but our unity in spite of our differences. Jesus says, okay, if you model that, you model unity, that's how the world will know that what, we are, what I am about is different than everything else in this world, every other false movement. Like, Because nowhere else and nobody else is able to stay together. They keep breaking into smaller things. But if you stay united, even though you disagree, but you're united in me, this movement, he says, it's like yeast. It's like mustard seed. It's like treasure buried in a field. It's like fine pearls. And so they committed. That was their playbook. They said, we're going to stay together. We're going to figure it out. Read the letters to the early churches. Most of the letters to the early churches are Paul writing to these churches saying, figure it out. I know you hate each other. I know you're mad at each other. I know you think you did this, and now you're, figure it out. You ever put your kids and say, you know what? I'm done trying to figure it out for you. You figure it out. Figure figure it out. Uh, but remember, you're one in Christ. He's like bedrock for you. So figure it out. You're, it's okay to disagree. It's fine, but figure it out. That's the first thing. Second thing, uh, he told them what to be united, but he also told them how. So the first, uh, and they took this playbook really, really serious. Jesus actually, in the same night, same night, right before the prayer, Jesus gives his disciples a new command, uh, like a new charge. Um, It's uh, a few chapters back, John 13, so earlier that same night. Uh, He does something scandalous, by the way. This is scandalous. Uh, Jesus, uh, as the story goes, you can read it. Jesus takes off his outer robe, and he uses his outer robe to wash his disciples' feet. This is a job reserved for slaves. That's scandalous. Not rabbis. Definitely not messiahs. Slaves. Jesus does that. And then he says this. Oh, by the way, they're, they're so scandalized by it that remember how they respond? Like, don't no, 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 don't do that. We should be doing that for you. In fact, a slave should be doing that, but, but we should do it for you, not you for us. And then Jesus says this. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asks them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, again, underline this next part if you have a Bible. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And then if you keep reading, uh, just in case they're not 100% clear, verse 34, he says, A new command I give you, love one another. How? As I have loved you. How? As I have, ha- how? As I have loved you. So not, uh, not because it says it in the Old Testament, not because it says it, not, but do it as I'm doing it model your life, love as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Jesus says this is a new command. It's like a new way. It's like it's, it's, this is, the early church referred to this as the law of Christ. Look up that, that phrase, law of Christ. You'll see it in the, in the writings of Paul a lot. Let me give you an example. Uh, Galatians 6.2, carry one, another bur- one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Love one another as I have loved you. So they said, okay, if he's washing feet and we're supposed to do that, carrying each other's burdens, that's how he would do it. Here's the question. What if we don't? He he hangs a lot on this, but what if we don't carry each other's burdens? What if we don't stand united in spite of our differences? What if we don't love one another as Jesus loved us? What if Uh, What if the church decided that the most important thing we should be doing is making sure our um, political candidate gets in office? What if the church decided it's okay to trash one another if they're wrong uh, behind their back? Or or it's okay to trash one another if they're wrong on social media in front of everybody's eyes, right? Like, it's it's okay to do if they're wrong. Uh, Jesus says it's in doing these things as Christians, loving like Christ and uniting in Christ, in Christ, that the world will know that he is who he said he is. He hangs a lot on that. He hangs a lot on that. So if we were to stop doing those things, would we potentially see a decline of the Christian church? People saying, I'm done with this thing. If we were to stop doing these things, is it possible, is it happening, that many people are saying, well, the Christian church has lost its power, not because Jesus has lost his power or his movement is less contagious, amazing, we're selling out for, but because the Christian church has decided, you know what, unity's not that big of a deal anymore, and loving is not that big of a deal anymore. And if we were to recommit to doing that, would we see healing? Would we see revival? That's what they did. We should do that again. Um, now maybe you're thinking, this is where my brain would go right now. Um, perhaps you're thinking, yeah, but there are issues that we have to divide over, Right? You've got your issues right now in your head. You've got your issues. I have my issues where you're like, yeah, that, that one's like a line in the sand issue. That's a big deal. A Christian church should take that seriously. All right, so you've got your issues. Like, what about the whatabouts, right? The what about, what about the sanctity of human life? What about abuse? What about violence? What about racism? These are big issues. The church has to speak up about this, right? Like, you talk about love, but it can't just be a squishy love, right? You, think, you were thinking that. Oh, yeah, here we go, the squishy love. Like, it's got like to, what about sin? Sin's real. What about sin? What do we do with sin? We talk about unity, but, like, what, you, it, you, you can't just be united with all kinds of people who don't want to take this thing seriously. So what do you do when, like, then there's a group of people that are clearly wrong? What do you do with that? Okay, hear me on this. Yes, I, uh, I, I, there are obviously things that are wrong in the world that the, that must be confronted. I 100% agree with that. But how we do that matters. And when the church, then or now, when the church does this and takes this seriously, I find it utterly compelling. Let me give you a couple stories. You um, remember, uh, you absolutely remember, uh, the tragic, it was 2015, the shooting in Charleston, South Carolina. Remember the story? Um, One of the most horrific uh, acts of gun violence uh, that we've seen, mass shooting, racially motivated, Uh, it was uh, in a black church um, during a Bible study. A man by the name of, remember the name Dylan Roof, walks into a church, and uh, he's an avowed white supremacist, and he walks into a a predominantly black church, and um, nine African American uh, Bible study members, he opened fires on them, including a state senator and the church's pastor, um, opens fire and uh, and then he goes back to brag about it and to laugh about it and to tell jokes about it and it should make your stomach turn. Um, it's one of the worst acts of tragedy, horror, evil uh, that that we as a country have seen. Um, this is about as bad as sin, sin can get. Um, during the sentencing, so as they're sentencing Dylan Roof, uh, the relatives and the, uh, the the relatives of the victims were uh, able to share some stories and to confront Dylan Roof. And um, one by one, you know what they did? One by one, they forgave him. One gentleman, a guy by the name of Anthony Thompson, whom I find to be an absolute inspiration, uh, his wife, Myra, was shot and killed at uh, point-blank range. And um, he looked his wife's murderer in the eyes during the sentencing, and he said these words, I forgive you, and my family forgives you. But we would like to take this opportunity to ask you to repent, to repent, to confess and give your life to the one who matters most, Christ. I love how Andy Stanley, Pastor Andy Stanley talks about this event. He says this, because this is what I was feeling too, but he he says it. Uh, Mr. Thompson invited Dylan Roof to make a decision that according to Thompson's way of thinking would enable Roof to share heaven with the folks he murdered, including his wife, are you kidding? Wouldn't I hope you rot in hell be more appropriate? Perhaps, no doubt that would have reflected Roof's sentiment two years earlier as he calmly pulled out his weapon, stared into the eyes of his victims and pulled the trigger over and over and over. The posture and the heart of Anthony Thompson went far beyond what was expected, went far beyond what the law expected, went far beyond what it means to be a good citizen it went far beyond even how we think of what it means to be a good Christian, but it looks a lot like Jesus. That's compelling. Now, was that just a squishy love that he felt? You can tell Anthony Thompson that that's just a squishy love and that you don't got to stand for something. There's strength to that man's character. We can do that again. Uh, another story. Another um, story. Again, you remember where you were, and I know these are dark stories on a beautiful day, but uh, important, I think. Um, you, you remember where you were when you heard of the, the absolute sheer depravity of um, the U.S. gymnastics coach, Larry Nasser and uh, the, the, the number, team doctor for the USA gymnastics team, and uh, the number of women, young women, um, kids, uh, that he sexually assaulted uh, in total, so the first to come forward was a lady named Rachel den Hollander, um, and she kind of broke the story open, but after she broke it open, um, two hundred and sixty five women girls came forward and said, "Yeah, that was our story too." Um, two hundred and sixty five young women came forward and said that's our story too uh, during um, during her time uh, when they were kind of uh, not, I don't think it was sentencing. I think it was in the courtroom itself. Um, but Nasser's in the courtroom, and Rachel Den Hollander it's finally, after all the girls have spoken, uh, well over a hundred girls spoke in the courtroom. Um, and after the girls had spoken, she finally has her turn, and she confronts Larry Nasser, uh, and she confronts the jury. And this is what she says: "You remember this quote? How much is a little girl worth?" And then she let that question kind of hang in the air: "How much is a little girl worth?" This is after little girl after little girl after little girl has shared their story. How much is a little girl worth? I submit to you that these children are worth everything. And then she addressed Nasser directly, and she said this. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you've spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it's on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed as of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin He did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. If this is your first time hearing this, by the way, I like it. Tears are probably the right response. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. Those are shocking words, but they look so much like Jesus. When Paul... um, Pastor Paul, to a church he planted in Philippi, he's been getting beat up by the Romans, um, literally beat up by the Romans, uh, and so have they. And so he's trying to confront them and kind of help them think through like, what they're going through. He says these words. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Maybe you think, yeah, we're in a warped and crooked generation. Children of God without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. What the first Christians understood and the, the yeast and the mustard seed that took over the world, what they understood is not a squishy love that ignores the reality of sin. Not a false unity that, that says, okay, we're just gonna pretend that there's not problems here. What they understood... the the command of Jesus and the prayer of Jesus, the playbook of the early church was not to to water it down and make it squishy and pretend like it's just kumbaya, none of us have any issues. What they understood is that if we can find a way in the midst of it all to remember that it's Jesus who holds us together, for those of us who claim Christ, he holds us together, we have to figure it out because we have to model it out. But you think like, well... Ah, we live in a country that's growing hostile to Christianity. Theirs was worse. Um, You think, well, we have values and morals, and they're slipping in our world. The Roman values and the Roman morals had slipped further. Maybe you're thinking, well, we have grotesque abuse and injustice in our world, and it has to be addressed. The abuse and injustice in the Roman world was even more grotesque. It was even more inhumane. So how and why did the early Christian movement expand into the world. They took the playbook seriously. They committed to living out their faith. They took it seriously. That's what they did. We can do that again. We should do that again, right? Um, Uh, Today, we're going to take communion, and um, we link in communion, we link our hearts to the generations of Christians before us who participated in uh, what they called communion. Um, We we link our hearts uh, to them, and we link our will to them, Um, but this is not just, uh, it's it's easy to think of communion as just, okay, this is just another religious thing that religious people do, and it's just another religious thing, and then we can go and hang out on a beach or something, but um, but. The first Christians understood that communion is not just a religious activity. This is an act of defiance. Um, Where else in the world, to this day, where else in the world do you find groups of people who think different? Paul said, neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. Fill in the oars in our lives, right? Republican or Democrat, pro-choice or pro-life. Where else in our world do you find people who disagree on the hot button issues, but yet are claiming Jesus and trying to figure it out, coming together? The church of The body of Christ is still the most diverse community, whether or not, maybe not in every individual building, but across our globe, it's the only place I can think of where people of radically different backgrounds are still coming together, claiming Christ and trying to figure it out. And so the first Christian said, what we need to do as an act of faith and an act of defiance is we take communion and we remind each other that the one who holds us together is far bigger than the ones who are trying to tear us apart. The uh, way we do uh, that at, as a church here is we have four stations in the front and then um, John, where's John Osterman? And John Osterman in the back will be, um, if, you need, if you'd need, if like someone to serve you, he'll be walk, kind of roaming around. Uh, there's a gluten-free option at every table, um, um, but you'll take the bread when you come forward and dip it into the juice uh, individually. And, um, and the band will lead us in a song of worship as we do that um, and we want to invite you to the table as, again, not just in a religious obligation or something you just do, but as a way of saying, I know what those people down the row think about this whole thing, and I don't agree with them necessarily, but we are united in Christ. Um, it's, uh, we, we talk about communion having three meanings we come in communion, in remembrance, and in hope. We come in community together into communion with Christ, we come remembering the price he paid. Uh, And then we come in hope that this is not all there is. The book of Revelation describes heaven as a great banquet table. We're practicing for that. Would you join me in a word of prayer, Lord? um, Your movement is uh, was so captivating and so good that it transformed the world. Uh, So much so, Lord, that even the critiques leveraged against the church today are used leveraging the arguments that you made for the world. Lord, would we be reminded of that? Lord, would we be reminded that we hold, like broken jars of clay, we hold the vessel of the greatest news this world has ever heard. Um, Lord, would we not um, be shy about that, be apologetic about that, but Lord, would we understand how beautiful and how good this news is to the world. And Lord, we also, would you help us to have soft hearts because we know that there is a lot of brokenness and a lot of pain by those who have carried your message falsely. And so Jesus, as we take communion this morning, again, we take it as your church, as an act of faith, uh, and Lord, as an act of commitment, we're in, we're in. And Jesus, we pray
0: this in your name. As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.